Grab a cuppa and take a seat. This is the Disability Podcast. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's very exciting. This week, I'm joined by Emma Jane. And first up, I'm going to ask you to say the main one first, because I know I'm going to say it wrong. So I'm just going to ask if you'll like say it and then maybe give like a little sort of definition of how you would describe it yourself. Okay, so I suppose the primary diagnosis in that it's present in most um, problematic at the moment is fibromyalgia, which is a disability that can affect lots of different aspects of your body and your nervous system and everything else. Um, primarily for me, it um, is my hands and feet and joints, um, and then also kind of like my heart and brain fog, tiredness. Yeah, lots of different things that you wouldn't necessarily have thought would be connected that are which is very interesting wow so they're like the main sort of symptoms you suffer with but when were you actually like officially diagnosed and what was that whole process like for you okay so it's it's been quite a journey so I've always as long as I can remember I've always had what was put down as growing pains as a child and that was later diagnosed as hypermobility so I've always known that I've had hypermobility and that also affects kind of all my joints, primarily knee, um, hips, jaw, fingers, toes. And that's always been kind of ongoing. Um, I learned how to kind of adapt to that, how to manage it, um, and how to kind of stay active and normal whilst living with it. Mm. So although it was always there and I always had the pain, it didn't necessarily interrupt kind of day-to-day life as much once I kind of got a, a handle on it. The funny thing with hypermobility is that my joints will just randomly dislocate sometimes, which isn't ideal. But <laughs> again, like um, unless, <laughs> unless they fully come out and won't go back in again, I've learned to adapt to that as well. But then after I had my therapy away, I had a fall and after that kind of just didn't heal in the way that I should have done didn't recover kind of as would have been expected or would have been kind of within my range of normal Mm. and so a few months after she was born I kind of realized that something wasn't quite right and um went to my doctor my GP who referred me to a rheumatologist and there were queries over arthritis and there still are um because some of the kind of things they look for in my bloods are borderline but not enough to kind of make a diagnosis at the moment so that's something that they continually monitor but in the kind of process of that they did a lot of checks and a lot of tests and it took a long time (laughs) um as these things do because they're kind of working on process of elimination that I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia about three years ago yeah and it it kind of works in peaks and troughs so it will hit and you'll have kind of a a flare-up or fears where it's really bad and then it might be a little bit less bad for a while the moment I've kind of been in permanent flare-up for a few months which is difficult but yeah that that was kind of the process against diagnosis. And what kind of things kind of help when you're in a flare-up like that are there certain like go-to things you try and do? Yeah so I I have a really high pain threshold so I will try and keep going for as long as I can and then my body will just be like now you're done (laughs) um and at the moment I'm probably over the last couple of years, it's been increasingly more. There will be times where my pain, my pain in my feet is so extreme, I can't put my feet to the ground. And then at that point, I have to stop. And for me, that's one of the most difficult things because I'm very much somebody who just keeps going. I'm like, right, life, throw whatever you want. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to find a way to get through it. 
game on kind of thing. But when you literally can't put your feet to the ground, you have no choice but to stop. And I find that really difficult. And, and that affects your physical health, but your mental health as well. So for me, I suppose there's this kind of a two a two-pronged thing there's the support with the physical aspect which is usually um things like physio hydrotherapy i have crutches that i need to use more or less all the time now if i'm honest but like to pretend i don't need them and then a, a whole kind of plethora of medication which again i resisted in the beginning because i was like i don't want to take medication i don't I don't want to rely on it i don't want to need it and and that was a process of acceptance and getting to a point where i was like if i want to have as normal in inverted commas a life as possible then i have to accept the help that's being offered but that was a really big kind of mental block for me accepting that i needed that level of medication and all the different kinds and and the fact that different drugs do different things and I was like can I not just have one and they were like no <laughs> but it's it's keeping me going it's keeping me mobile so I have to be thankful for it so there's that kind of aspect and then there's also the other aspect in terms of keeping my emotional and mental health in a good place and I guess and surprisingly Bethany you won't be shocked by this but fear is is a big part of that and that kind of escapism that distraction and the magic that comes with being in a room of like-minded people and seeing something so magical, which I've already said, played out in front of you. And that kind of escapism and those pockets, I think that that's a big thing, like those pockets of joy and just having those countdowns. And I pay for it after because when I come home, it usually can move. <laughs> but it is worth it because the kind of resilience that that builds and the kind of topping up your kind of um, reserve of, of strength and energy. Yeah, definitely. I completely relate to that because... I find a lot with my anxiety and stuff, my go-to thing is like theatre or like going to the cinema or things like that. And obviously at the moment you can't really do it in the way you would normally do it. So that's been really difficult to adjust to and be like, oh, the thing that usually distracts me and makes me feel amazing isn't like a viable option in the way it was. So yeah, I completely get what you're saying there. You said a bit earlier about how like you can just like completely dislocate like joints and stuff. Have your like family members mm-hmm. sort of learned like what to do in that situation? And if like, say, for example, you were by yourself, what would you actually do in that instance? Um, I guess I have learned how to mask it. And one of the things that I do is try to protect everyone around me because I don't want anybody else around me to be impacted by my disabilities. And yeah. again, that's something that I have to revisit and learn how to accept help and support. But I, if if the joints come out a little bit, it'd be quite painful, but they go back in and then I just adapt my schedule for the day and keep going. If they come out completely, I can usually, I'm very squeamish with it. This is one of the bits that I really don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I can usually kind of back in. But there was um, a number of years ago now, a time where I just twisted my knee a little bit awkwardly. It came out and was like very far away from where it was meant to be. And I kind of, hit the ground quite hard um, and it didn't go back in um, and I screamed a lot and <laughs> um, my husband actually wasn't there it was my mum and dad that were there and it was almost at the point where they were going to have to call an ambulance but it did go back in in the end and then we went to A&E and I had my leg in a, a full cast for a few months to kind of try and correct it but yeah that's that's happened a couple of times um, but that is the most problematic one and I guess that there isn't really anything they can do because mm-hmm. either I can kind of manage it or it's 
beyond the point where anybody non-medically trained should really be <laughs> intervening. Um, but they're all really understanding um, and really supportive, which is good. Definitely. And you mentioned as well about having to accept to take like the medication and things like that. And I feel like mm-hmm. that just must be a massive step to suddenly be like the whole acceptance thing around like having a disability and life not being inverted commas normal is like quite hard yeah. to accept really and be like oh actually there is this thing that I need to address and kind of like I don't know accept that help but then I think once you have you kind of really see all the benefits that come along with it but there is that kind of like sense of I don't know how I would explain it really just that sense of kind of oh I don't really want to do it but you know it's the right thing to do in the end yeah it's almost like a grief isn't it because you're mm-hmm you're acknowledging that the way you thought life was going to be is no longer going to be that way. Um, so there is a loss there and it is kind of that cycle of grief that comes after a bereavement kicks in, I think, and you have to work through acceptance, denial, and then, yeah, anger, sadness, frustration, and eventually you, you do get to the acceptance part, but it is a, a journey, definitely. And I think for me, when the fibromyalgia came along, it just, it was really good because I, I'd worked really hard for so many years to get on top of the hypermobility and to find ways to work around it. And I've been working out a lot and I've lost a lot of weight and was in a really good place physically. So it just felt like a bit of a ache in the teeth. <laughs> but in saying that, I'm, you know, I am thankful that it's something that there are medications there for that I, I can take them now that I've kind of worked through and got to that point of acceptance. But yeah, that was a, a big, big challenge. Definitely. And have you found since like your diagnosis and everything that you've had quite a lot of support from like doctors and other people? And is it quite hard explaining to like friends like certain things or do they just kind of get it? Yeah, I think I've had really good support from my GP. Um, So massive kind of shout out to him. He has been exceptional and he will always make time to see me acknowledge how difficult it is. I am still young and kind of facing challenges that other people my age might not consider would crop up so he has been a a, um you know a real help and support along the way obviously he's limited in terms of of the demands on the nhs etc in in what he can put in place um i was having physio kind of prior to march of this year which was helpful and supportive and obviously all, all those kind of things are on hold at the moment but um there are things out there that they can put in place and try and the hydrotherapy um, and those kind of things. You know, we're lucky to have that as well. I did see an occupational therapist as well for my hands for a bit. And we tried kind of some splints and things to try and relieve a bit of the the pain. In terms of my friends, I am so lucky because I have the most amazing friends in the world. But I'm so lucky to have like different little groups of friends and, and really supportive colleagues. Um, but I try do as much of it on my own as possible which is probably a weakness I don't know I I I still have this thing where I just want to be normal and I don't want to hold other people back so I think probably a lot of them would be surprised to know how much pain I'm in all the time they know they know about the fibro they're really patient you know I travel with them quite a lot so we'll we'll go to Disney quite a lot together or do theater trips um so they they see it and they know that I have the crutch and everything now but I think they're probably still not aware of the extent of the pain and the impact that that has 
I feel like that's really common when you have like mm-hmm. something like that that you do kind of conceal how much it does affect things because like you say you don't want to like bring it down and kind of you just kind of deal with it because you're like oh it's fine and I think when you get so used to it as well it kind of just becomes normal to you so you almost forget that to other people this might not be like a normal situation at all did you um when you found out um were your work quite supportive of everything and did they like make any adjustments or yeah so work have been brilliant um I yeah I work in quite a high pressure environment so again a lot of it was me having to deal with my own guilt about asking for help and support because I went through a period where I was just like I should just leave so that they can get someone who's not broken to <laughs> to do this job and do it better which I know kind of you know reflect on that it's not true I know that I can do my job really well which is why I'm still there um but you do kind of carry that that guilt and that feeling of not being enough and not being kind of complete I suppose um so I was really reluctant to kind of accept or ask for any help in the beginning until it got to a point where I was just miserable with peeing all day every day and still trying to hide it um but work has been brilliant and I think you know improvements are definitely being made in workplaces in general I think so we used the access to work scheme and I got some equipment from my desk to support with kind of the pain that I have um when I'm office based kind of you know in terms of like even typing is really painful for me because of like the movement in my fingers um so I have a different keyboard and a different mouse and I've got um a thing under my desk which the technical term I've completely forgotten but it's like I can put my legs up so that my legs aren't bent all day so yeah they've been really good at kind of adjusting and, and adapting um and supporting me which has been really helpful mm, definitely I think it makes a massive difference when you're in a supportive environment like that and they kind of like really sort of make not allowances but they really kind of understand the situation it's a massive help yeah you love going to Disney for those that don't know and (laughs) traveling in general do you find that has it always been difficult to travel or have you kind of like you just know what to do like does it tie I would imagine it maybe like ties you out quite a lot the sort of flying to places and obviously like because when you're on a plane you're so sort of squashed into a area do you find that quite difficult yeah Yeah, and I think I think definitely over the past couple of years just got the mindset now of like seize the moment and go while I can because I don't know if it will always be possible at the moment I'm really lucky in that I can manage it by kind of planning carefully and putting things in place um so I yeah I definitely in normal times kind of pre-covid will will completely make the most of that and unapologetically (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I don't know when that is end or change and yeah um with with planes it's you know I've actually found airports and um airlines and everything have all been really good in terms of you know they'll give me the choice do I want to board first or do I want to board at the end um do I need any support getting on and off the plane and at the moment I can manage the steps um with my crutch and you know with, with someone with me but you know they've made it clear that if there comes a point where I can't then they you know there's other ways of kind of getting onto the plane so um I think there's definitely a, a growing awareness of disability and, and particularly of hidden disability. Um, I do wear the sunflower lanyard when I travel, particularly um, when I travel on my own, because again, it just gives you that kind of 
a safety net of highlighting that you do have disability without kind of making it glaringly obvious so um that helps in terms of kind of peace of mind as well I think and usually staff are pretty pretty good when they see that they'll ask if there's anything they can do but yeah it's it definitely depending on how long the plane journey is it can be quite difficult but I think I've learned kind of building strategies to minimize the impact so when we flew to Disney World at the beginning of the year we had a couple of days of kind of rest or low-key activities before we started into the theme parks because I knew that with kind of the traveling and the journey and everything that I would need time to recover a little bit before starting into kind of full-on theme park days. Shorter flights so again it's all about the Disney but if we're flying to Paris then it's a very short flight so it's a lot more manageable in terms of being able to move and change position and everything. Plus, I think Disney are like probably one of the best places I've been for disability because when we went to Florida way back when and my nan at some points was using a wheelchair and they were just so welcoming and really just did everything. And I don't know if it's because I feel like it was maybe because we were in America, but they were just so on it. And they were like, of course, come straight to this part and like, we didn't have to queue to go on Peter Pan. We went straight on and they just made all these like yeah. acceptances and you were just like, because normally I sometimes find in the UK in particular, like people treat disability in such a way that you're a bit like, I don't know, you're like almost shoved to one side and you're not like considered in that way. Whilst I feel like my nan felt like a superstar because we were just like going here, we were going there and they were just being so lovely. So I think Disney do that really well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, both Disney and Universal in Florida, we had brilliant experiences. Um, my little boy has autism, so um, we have kind of different sets of needs. But certainly, you know, again, they, they do go above and beyond, like you say. And they, all the Disney parks um, that we visited so far have special kind of um, policies in place for parents with disabilities um, so in Florida they have a disabled access um, service which is a digital service so when you arrive at the parks you can go and speak to a cast member and they will set you up on the app with um, a disability access service and you can then make a time to visit an attraction or go on a ride um, without having to wait in the longer queue so when you come back you'll go through the pass pass queue and you can use that in conjunction with normal fast passes so we really find that by kind of combining the normal disney fast passes um with the disability passes we were able to get a lot done and it certainly made it a lot more manageable there was a point in disney for the first time ever i had to give in and use a wheelchair for a very short period of day but I wasn't happy about it <laughs> um but again that's an acceptance thing um and again they you know they went and got one um it was we were waiting for an activity that that one of my children wanted to do and my legs just went and um straight away they you know they have like a magical reserve of wheelchairs floating around somewhere mm-hmm. that they were able to just go and grab um and within a couple minutes it was there and they were like you know you can use this and back to a cast member somewhere when you're when you're feeling better and you don't want it anymore so really really good service really understanding and um really well set up um paris is similar so they have um two options at the moment it's constantly under review but um my last visit there last year 
they have what's called like a green card and then they have an orange one and the orange one is for temporary illness or disability um and i don't know too much about that one um but the green one that i have is kind of for permanent disability um and again then there's a different entrance that you can access um so both parks really well really well set up and really well thought out as well um and again it just it just makes theme park life manageable and enjoyable for people with disabilities because I think what people don't realise is that it's not it's not a luxury. You know, I'm very thankful that I have that and that I can access those services. But it's because we couldn't do park days without them. You know, I couldn't stand that long and I'd love to be able to trade that off and just stand in the normal queue like everyone else. Um but I can't. So the fact that that those services are there to enable me to continue doing something that I really, really love um, means a lot. Definitely. I feel like a lot of places could learn from Disney in that regard and making mm-hmm. it so like accessible and welcoming for everyone as well. Really good. Definitely. I will out to Merlin Parks in the UK as well because they they were really good. We went there this summer because we couldn't travel abroad. Um, so we went to Alton Towers and they had a similar kind of um set up in place um very similar to the one that we use in in Disneyland Paris um so again that was something that made the day more manageable and kind of more enjoyable so the like little things even, like, that add up and like mean a lot later on which really help I think yeah definitely definitely um, definitely have you got like any advice for people listening who might be thinking oh that's weird I've like suffered with things like this and that of some of the symptoms you mentioned earlier like have you got any in particular advice for them at all yeah I think don't be afraid to reach out for help I think people particularly in Britain maybe we we have like a culture of just accepting things or just dealing with it or putting up with it and not complaining um but actually the sooner you can get support in place the more quickly you can find ways of minimizing the impact and, and minimizing the symptoms um which has benefits obviously short term and long term as well in terms of not curing it because it can't be cured but just finding manageable ways of living it you shouldn't you shouldn't have to live in in pain um and i think hanging there is another one because the the process of diagnosis is very long it is very frustrating you're not on your own if you experience that by any means it's a, a long drawn out process um and I imagine at the moment potentially that's going to be an even longer more drawn out process um but keep keep pushing um keep asking for those appointments to kind of come through um because it is something that that you do need support with particularly when there are so many different aspects of your body and your life that are affected and things like brain fog um and the kind of mental health aspects of it can be really difficult to um cope with as well so when you combine that with the physical pain it is quite overwhelming so do do kind of reach out for support there's also some um really good support groups on Facebook um, and probably on other platforms as well um, which kind of brings people together and, and I would say use them but use it with caution because everyone's experience is going to be different so what works for one person won't work for someone else and I think everybody's journey through fibromyalgia like with everybody's journey in, in life in general um, you know there are so few rights and wrongs and lots of different options that might 
work more or less well for you um but certainly just in terms of connecting with other people who might have been through similar experiences and who might be able to say actually I get that and particularly on the really bad days when you know you're really struggling to kind of get your thoughts clear where your hands or feet won't work and you just kind of feel like you're the only person in the world who's struggling so much um just connecting with someone else who's like oh I've, I've been through that and this is what helped can really make a big difference definitely I think that's really interesting you say that because the girls who I originally set this up with we obviously all have dyslexia mm-hmm. and we met at uni and we started talking about our dyslexia and it was just so sort of refreshing speaking to people who have the same thing as you but obviously everyone has different symptoms but having those common things together and being like oh I'm not actually crazy like this is what other people experience as well and it's just so freeing discussing things like that with other people because you're like oh there are other people out there like me and that's okay um so yeah it's definitely good to like reach out and talk to other people if you can I think definitely are you okay to chat a little bit about your son is that okay yeah yeah of course because you (laughs) You mentioned that your son has um, autism. I think you said to me yeah. he has, does he have Asperger's? Yeah, so, Asperger's, yeah. So how was um, that like diagnosed originally? Yeah, so um, it, it's a little bit confusing in the autism world because his diagnosis is Asperger's, but they don't use that now in some parts of the UK as a diagnostic term. So everything kind of comes under the ASD, autistic spectrum disorder um, and is kind of considered autism but Asperger's is what we were told and what we kind of um, have researched and read up on and it's still there it's just kind of been um, enveloped into the ASD autism um, umbrella Um, but he we knew really really early on from he was tiny um, and part of that you know, potentially is, is my professional background, having worked as a social worker um, originally. So kind of having worked in, in that field and been to those lectures and kind of done research on, on autism, um, I knew the, the kind of signs and indicators pretty well. Um, but he, I mean, he knew his whole alphabet by about 18 months just from watching a video a couple of times. Um, and he would be able to kind of, recognize letters if you drew them and kind of say what it was and everyone was like oh he's so clever and I was like yeah he is but he's probably also on the autistic spectrum (laughs) Um, and it's not just kind of cleverness that he knows this like there's something kind of in his behavior and his mannerisms Um, so I kind of knew from really early on Um, and then when he went to play school his teacher felt the same way that that we did Um, so at that point I was like okay well let's get the ball rolling with diagnosis so that should he need any help and support later on the diagnosis is there already and he was coping really well you know kind of mainstream nursery coping really well didn't need any additional support at that time but I just wanted it in place for him if he didn't need it further down the line um so we didn't wait until he went to school there's kind of two options with diagnosis you can either go um, through the health route, like through your GP or through school and kind of educational psychology. Um, but because we knew so early, I went through the GP and she did um, a referral to the um, Child Development Centre. Um, and then that kind of kicked off the waiting list and everything for diagnosis. Um, so he'd started school before he was seen. Um, and so he was still quite little. 
but the process is kind of you know over a, a period of months anyway because they need to kind of see if it's consistent and obviously you know you don't want to kind of make a diagnosis on a child and then it not be right so they are quite thorough in what they do and it's multidisciplinary um so his pediatrician was involved speech and language therapist was involved um and it, it took probably maybe 18 months from from point of referral to diagnosis um so i think he was actually going into his second year of primary school before we we had it confirmed wow that must have been quite difficult because it's such a long period and it's such like a a young and important age where everything's like developing and you're kind of like trying to see what's what but it must have been so sort of nice when you almost had the diagnosis in a way because you'd be like okay and then you kind of had like a plan of action of what you could do sort of going forward from then yeah I think I mean we were quite lucky in that he was coping really well in the school set and um and he he didn't need anything urgently I think had we been waiting or struggling um with any of his kind of behaviors or anything then that would have been a very very different scenario and the way it would have been very different so I appreciate that we are kind of very fortunate in in that respect and that we weren't waiting for help um but yeah it is long and it was you know it was nice to kind of have it confirmed and and know where we were at and what we were dealing with and and that the door was then kind of open for support if he were to need it at any point definitely what what are the main kind of symptoms he has yeah so um concentration is is one so with autism your brain just works completely differently so in in terms of kind of his thought processes are very different from neurotypical thought processes um and I always say I kind of again this is is our experience with Isaac everyone with um autism is their own individual person so what we've observed in him may be completely different from everyone else and I think particularly with autism there can be kind of this blanket um, approach or blanket thought people hear it and think a certain a certain kind of set of things apply um but that certainly hasn't been our experience and he you know he does get quite fixated on certain things for a period of time which is quite typical um so he'll be really into a certain game for a while or a certain program when he was younger um and he will know everything there is to know about that particular think um so polar bears for example was kind of uh, his favorite thing for a long time and he could have told you everything about polar bears that you ever could have imagined that you'd need to know um at the moment it's pokemon and minecraft um and he will become very kind of hard to distract them when he's focused on those things and he'll only want to talk about those things um and so kind of you know we're completely exceptional of that and that's him but we're also as parents have to kind of acknowledge that he also needs to be able to engage with people outside of kind of his his little circle at home and so kind of helping him to to find ways to connect with other people talk about things they're interested about as well and kind of shift in that intense focus Um, and that's something that changes and evolves as he grows so kind of coming into this next stage of his life where he's getting a bit older it's going to change again um but he yeah he he takes everything in his stride and um, something that worries me as a parent is that he 
is very black and white um, in his thinking and life is a whole range of muddy colored and scales of gray and everything in between um but for him you know things are right or wrong there's no middle ground it's yes or no there's no possibly um and so that that does concern me as a parent not so much now but as he gets a little bit older and kind of starts um kind of going his own way in life kind of how he will Mm. manage that and basically and how that affects his relationships with other people because his tolerance levels can be quite low and he does find it difficult to to cope when he's overwhelmed um and again that would be quite typical and uh, you know the the autism community i think outside the autism community often uses the word meltdowns and i i do use it but i don't love it as a term because i think he's he's just overwhelmed you know he's he's not doing anything wrong overwhelmed and he doesn't know how to process kind of the thoughts that he's having or the reaction so there's that aspect and then there's the sensory aspect as well um so with foods he doesn't like his foods to be mixed together so um if we're having curry or something at home he'll have like the rice the chicken the sauce all separate mm-hmm. um and he eat very well when they're mixed together um and he'll have quite a a strong reaction to kind of taste or flavors that he's not expecting so butter is is one of his sensory things he can't have the texture of butter so if he accidentally eats a sandwich that has butter in it he will react quite strongly and with noises again he like I'm so proud of him because he he is amazing and he's learned kind of his own coping techniques for a lot of these things and um, when he was younger sound would really bother him and um, so you'd often kind of particularly things like hand dryers in in bathrooms or the reversing noises if a if a van is reversing um that would kind of panic him scare me to have his hands over his ears but again as he's gotten older he's learned of ways himself to kind of cope with that so yeah he's he's pretty awesome he sounds really cool <laughs> yeah have you found that has lockdown been quite difficult because you obviously said like in terms of like socializing and stuff and obviously you're then kind of just like back to your like smaller family unit has he sort of found that difficult to adjust to that yeah so I thought he would but in in typical Isaac fashion he does the complete opposite of what I think <laughs> is going to happen um, and he loved it he was like this is brilliant um not bothered about going back to normal life I was like no <laughs> that's not how I feel um but yeah um my husband and myself are both key workers um so we were really limited in terms of being able to take any time off um particularly at at the kind of height of the pandemic, April, May time, we were both really, really stretched at work. Um, and so because we were key workers, it meant that we were able to have my mum look after my children. And she's a teacher, so big shout out and thanks to mum, because I don't think I could have homeschooled three children. Um, but he absolutely thrived in, in that environment, just having that small number of people, kind of one-to-one teaching, time and space, um, mum's really tuned into him and his kind of quirks and and also his strengths and so she was able to kind of identify the best ways of connecting with him and the best resources to use with him and so he had a really positive experience um of of lockdown and of homeschooling which I couldn't have predicted um and it worked really well for him and yeah he he's just had his kind of first report since 
gone gone back to school in September and he's done really really well so he's really kind of thrived during it. That's like really nice to hear actually. One question I had was in terms of like representation and stuff in the media (laughs) of like autism and other things like do you kind of agree with how sometimes like tv shows and films just show it as being one thing when obviously like you said there's so many different types of autism I kind of feel like the representation of it as a whole is very like extreme in a sense. Yeah I think I mean I think it's difficult and it it's one of those scenarios isn't it where like whoever is producing it has their own personal experience so it's obviously going to be kind of coloured by their view and their knowledge um, and that's not to say it's wrong but I think I suppose like with many disabilities it's, it's highlighting that, that particular programme or that particular segment is is true for that person and for their world um, and that there is a whole kind of spectrum out there of, of different people and, and they may have different needs and challenges and I think with eyes like I hate the term high function like I really hate it mm. um like what does that even mean and what does that mean for the children who might not be high functioning like I just uh, the term needs to be binned like completely um but he on his nose says that he's high functioning but I think there you does need to be awareness there are other families who whose children may be non-verbal who may need a whole different kind of support network from from what we need and I think it's important that their their stories are heard just in the same way that kind of high functioning families stories are heard um and that there is that acknowledgement that every every child is individual and every child is unique um, and every child needs their own kind of individualized plan for support because just like neurotypical children they all have their own kind of strengths and weaknesses as well yeah and I think it's just important not to kind of limit any child on the autistic spectrum sort of to one kind of box because they're all amazing they've all got strengths and talents in um in certain areas um and I think there has been a shift in recent years from focusing on on negatives to focusing on the positive not to kind of downplay the difficulties and struggles that a lot of families go through but just kind of acknowledging that every child has their own kind of skill set and their own value definitely I don't know if that makes sense no it does it does for sure okay (laughs) Um, have you got any advice for like some parents who might be listening or people who think they might be autistic what would you sort of say to them yeah I think um Again, I suppose similarly, like reach out for support, and I think that's a key message for everyone at the moment, but particularly for people with additional needs or disabilities or going through a, a tough time. Just get support in place, and and don't be afraid to push doors until you get the right support for you, because it, the you know the first place where you reach out may not be the right support for you as an individual but don't let that put you off because you will connect eventually with with the right resource or the right person and I think yeah just I suppose I'm I'm very research oriented so I don't know if that would work for everyone um but I research everything to death um so again there's so much information out there on the internet um so I say use that to your advantage but also protect yourself in it because not everything you access will be accurate or helpful so fact check everything you read um kind of check the sources before you open something make sure it's reputable and and I guess connect with other people 
you know, either parents of, of children with autism or other people who have autism or who are autistic. And again, I'm I'm constantly learning, constantly evolving. And I, I was chatting to someone the other day who pointed out that they, as an autistic um, young adult, don't like being um, referred to as someone with autism mm. because they are, wouldn't say um, that in other contexts they they us to just kind of say that they're artistic like it's a part of them they're not carrying it around with them it's it's who they are and mm-hmm. so I was like okay I need to then learn from that and take that on board and ask people how they want to be referred to and what their perception of because it won't be the same for everyone and Isaac is quite happy to say that he has Asperger's but the next person that I, I chat with may prefer to say that they are artistic and, and they may not like saying that they have anything um so I think I think it's important for all of us to stay teachable and to continuously update our knowledge and to kind of um, adjust and uh, progress as required. I agree. I feel like labels are really difficult because they do kind of really like put you into a certain group and you're like, because I always think with my dyslexia, like, yeah, I have dyslexia and it is like a part of who I am, but you're so much more than what your disability is even though it's a part of you so it's important to look at it like that and obviously like see how people want to be addressed and everything for sure yeah definitely always Uh, learning (laughs) yeah definitely have you got any kind of like things you want to talk about that I've not mentioned at all oh I don't know (laughs) (laughs) no just I think yeah I just think I suppose hidden displays um and reason awareness for hidden displays is obviously something that I'm really passionate about because of my personal experience um and I think there's still such a long way to go I think there's been so much progress made and so much of a shift but I think I suppose even the pandemic has kind of thrown into the spotlight how much further we still need to go and the way that people are treated and the way that entire communities are still left behind and and I think I suppose one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is is kind of masks and how masks aren't accessible to everyone not everyone can wear masks for so many different reasons but I know that a lot of kind of individual communities within the wider disability community have faced a lot of additional pressure and anxiety and and grief for that and you know I'm I'm technically exempt I'm lucky enough that on most days I can wear my mask because you know I want to do that I want to keep people safe I want to to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can there are occasions where I can't because my anxiety and and panic attacks are so bad that I can't breathe Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm like well if I don't take it off I am probably going to pass out and that's not going to help anyone um and I'm I'm confident enough and secure enough for myself to do that. But I know that I've spoken to other people who just have feel much question that they haven't been able to leave the house. And um, I have recently doing started doing some research myself. Kind of I watched a segment on this morning about the deaf community, and I thought I haven't really kind of given enough thought to to that and to how it must be impacting on them and mm-hmm. I'm like oh I need to pull my socks up a little bit there because actually my awareness of how the community as a whole are coping hadn't really kind of entered into my thoughts and how difficult it is for them um and I think you know some of these things have kind of been rushed to the, the spotlight because of the pandemic but even prior to that you know how much in society is altered to adapt for those kind of 
um, specific needs and I think we probably still have quite a long way to go in terms of acceptance and understanding and yeah I'm constantly kind of reviewing what I can do to improve my support for people who are individualized and I think I suppose bringing it back to myself because I find it easier to talk about the people but I'm <laughs> bringing it back to myself it is difficult when you're younger and disabled and I'm sure it's equally difficult when you're older and disabled but I can't I can't speak from personal experience of that as yet because there are certain expectations on what you can and can't do and what you should and should not be able to do and I think should is such a damaging word you should be able to do this or you shouldn't be doing that is is really difficult um and yeah I don't really know where I'm going with this other than to say that I think we still have a long way to go in terms of acceptance and understanding and respect it's like we're a little step on the way to the bigger path but I think like what you said that all you can really do is just learn yourself and kind of research things and like ask questions and just keep learning really yeah it's the quote in To Kill a Mockingbird isn't it about walking a mile in in someone else's shoes Mm -hmm. and I think we need to do that more often and in more different kinds of shoes <laughs> to kind of try and, and understand the wider context of things but yeah I know I've certainly felt very judged and very kind of not sidelined but stereotyped and I think that's a, a challenge for everyone. Cool well I feel like we've got some cracking stuff there I'm excited um <laughs> episode all together and make a cool episode but thank you very much for coming on it's been great talking to you and like learning myself because I'd never heard of I'm not I'm not even sure I can say it I'll just say fibro like the shorter yeah Yeah. (laughs) and learning more about like autism and things like that as well has been really interesting and I hope people listening have learned and as always I'll put like support links available for people so they can go and check out some more information too but yeah thanks for joining me no thank you for having me grab a cuppa and take a seat this is the disability podcast